Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, it is an honor to be kicking off Women's History Month with Dr. Somi Javade. Dr. Javade is a board-certified OBGYN and a pioneer in the women's sexual healthcare space. She is the founder and chief medical officer of HerMD, an integrated evidence-based model revolutionizing women's healthcare. The HerMD team is hyper-focused on the underserved specialties of menopause and sexual health. HerMD centers are designed to empower both patients and physicians by providing a safe, welcoming space to discuss all your healthcare needs, shame and stigma-free. Recently, HerMD raised $10 million in their Series A fundraise to bring their unique healthcare model patients across the United States. Jazz Ventures led the Series A round. Listeners, I hope you enjoy the incredible lineup of badass women I have for the month of March. Make sure you tune in, like their episodes, and share with your networks. The more you know, the more we can empower women across the globe. Dr. Javade, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really been looking for this episode, and obviously, it's Women's History Month, and so I'm so excited to talk about HerMD, but what I think was so fascinating about your story was that you really got into and had this dream of helping women because of a really personal experience that happened to your mother while you were in med school. Would you mind just level setting for the listeners and sharing that story? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, No, it was a crazy, crazy story. Uh, I was pre-med at Northwestern at the time. And my mom had bounced in and out of hospitals uh, for about six weeks, complaining of chest pain, left arm pain, shortness of breath. If everyone, anyone Googles that now, even if you're not a doctor, you're going to think, oh my God, it's her heart. Um, But she was really dismissed by her doctors. Um, They told her maybe it's much caffeine. Maybe your children are stressing you out. I remember looking at her EKG and I was pre-med saying this is not normal. And her cardiologist said, well, women's EKGs are abnormal or can be abnormal, but not indicate heart disease. And it was because science and data at the time couldn't explain why a thin non-smoking woman would ever present with four vessel disease, even though she had lost both a sister and her own mother at around the age of 50. And so, you know, luckily for her and for our family, she finally got a diagnosis and ended up having emergent quadruple bypass surgery. If she would have had the heart attack, she would have not survived, which is sadly a statistic that women are more likely still in 2023 to die of heart attacks than our male counterparts. Um, And so, you know, these dismissals nearly cost her her life. And um, it kills me. And so that was my aha moment uh, that I was going to go into women's healthcare and be an advocate for women. You know, fast forward, medical school residency, I got my first job and the broken healthcare system really smacked me in my idealistic face. I didn't have time to go to the bathroom or eat lunch, let alone be an advocate or truly listen to my patients. And in all the research I've done leading up to this interview, as well as speaking to former podcast guests, there is such a gender bias in medicine when it comes to women's health. And in 2018, a Forbes article talked about that from head to toe, that women only receive about 
4% of the medical funding and care that men do. When I heard that stat, I was blown away because we make up 50% of the population. You would think that now in the last however many years, there would be a little bit more equality in funding or research around women's health, but 4%. Why is there such a stigma? And obviously you went to med school. I know it goes back decades, centuries of why this is, but can you just explain that a little bit more? Oh God, it, it, this drives me crazy. Um, so a lot of people ask me, how did we get here? And to add insult to injury to that data you just shared, 2% of all funding goes to the prostate, which is the size of a walnut. Just, just think about that. You take a woman from head to toe, it's 4%. And then I'm mean, not that men don't deserve, you know, the research, the data, but I'm just saying, if you just think about that visually, that inequality, and it's, it really hits home. Um, currently women are still underrepresented in three out of every four clinical trials, even though we outnumber men in the workforce, in medicine and in hospitals, we don't outnumber them in the decision-making rooms. Um, the nomenclature or the way the words that we use in medicine are so biased. You know, I did that project with peanut talking about, um, harmful medical terminology, you know, habitual aborter is a woman who suffers recurrent miscarriage. Um, and this is pervasive in medicine. And we teach this as if words don't have power or meaning. Um, and I think the other issue is that there is provider bias, regardless of your provider being male or female, uh, towards um, female patients. And so what does that mean? You know, I already shared that women are more likely to die of a heart attack, and it's because of delays in diagnosis. If you take a female and, or male patient, they present to the emergency room, women will wait longer for their pain medications because the pain is not believed or validated. And so when you take all of these issues that are just frank barriers to care, it's how we've ended up with this ginormous inequality in medicine. If you look at the FDA approved medications for sexuality, 26 for men, two for women. If you look at the data about, you know, we take care of a lot of survivors and their sexual health, um, male patients are asked about their sexuality, um, their sexual health, nine out of 10 times. Women, the study came out last year, one out of 10. It's just, it, it's crazy. There are so many reasons that we have ended up this way. And one final you know, thought process behind this is traditionally in gynecology, providers have been male and they have looked upon their patients uh, two ways. Uh, one is... Um, you know, vessels to, to make babies, right? And so there's a lot of attention on the reproductive years. And the second is um, vessels for male pleasure. And so that can explain some of the discordance when it comes to sexual health drugs and how we've gotten here and why, like in medical school as a gynecologist, I never learned about female sexual health other than contraception, fertility, and maybe pain. Um and, you know, we're never taught about female pleasure, arousal, orgasm, desire. Uh, and that's crazy to me. And I think that's why nationally less than 20% of OBGYNs are even trained in sexual health or menopause. There's so much to unpack there. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think it's coming at a moment where women are owning their sexuality. You and I met 
through the Womanist Metapositivity Tour. And Sally Mueller, who was on the podcast, started a brand really focused around menopause. And lately, I've been seeing the word menopause on People Magazine and of several other publications. It's starting to become more mainstream and talked about. But I have also heard you say, you got no training around that. And every female goes through that period. There's not a lot of research when 50% of the population, it's not a question, it's a fact, will go through this during their life cycle. Um, but what I thought was so interesting when we were talking, when we first met was just how the 15 minute appointment, how medicine today and the way the insurance needs are set up is that you are trying to squeeze almost six patients sometimes into an hour. And it's really hard for a doctor to really understand what you're going through in 15 minutes when someone's knocking on the door and saying, you have two other people waiting for you. What we spoke about is women can say they're tired, can say they're feeling all these things. And some doctors just chalk it up with, well, you're a mom, you're working, it's normal, it's natural, but they're not really fighting for their patient. Can you talk about what that was like for you? when you were in that system? Because obviously now you have HerMD, it's completely different system and we'll get there. But why, what did you think when you were having those, you know, door knock conversations and just moving through patients daily? Um, here I was a physician um, and I felt broken. I felt like a failure. I felt helpless. And uh, that's why I wanted to and ended up quitting my job because, you know, I'm a physician and a mother and spent all these years training and most providers, you go in because you want to help people, you want to heal, you want to be partners in their healthcare. And because of non-physicians, um, decision makers at large institutions, because um, insurance companies, the reimbursements are so low that you are forced to see patients every 15 minutes. And um, it's crazy because think about talking to a patient, garnering their trust, going through their history and physical, um, examining them, finding out what medications they're on, talking to them about the most personal issues in their life, and then trying to discuss their options, the risk benefits alternatives. Don't forget to document it all in the chart, right? Typing, which I didn't learn. Um, and then sending off all the prescriptions and make sure you put in all the orders for any labs. Um, and you're supposed to accomplish that in 15 minutes. A study came out last year showing that eight hours of work for a provider is actually equivocal to north of 27 hours of work. And so that is the strain we're putting on providers. And there was an article that just came out today talking about how providers are leaving the workforce, like enough is enough. They don't have mission. Uh, they don't have the ability to have autonomy. Um, and it's not what they signed up for. Like they want to take care of patients and they want to give patients the time that they deserve. And so when patients come to me and they're so angry with their providers, I'm like, you probably wouldn't have liked me either because when I was in that system, it's not that your provider is broken, the system is broken. And I would think that to talk about your sexual health or menopause or those really personal topics that frankly were taught are taboo and you don't talk about. So it might take a little while to feel comfortable 
saying, you know, it's painful when I have sex or I have really low sex drive or something's off. 15 minutes isn't a lot of time to get vulnerable and open up and feel comfortable sharing these issues you're having. So you just kind of don't talk about it. And I feel like that ends up snowballing in the future because Mm -hmm. there could be something wrong or why should you be having pain constantly if you're trying to have sex with your spouse? That's no way to live, but we're not really given them the opportunity to have that conversation. And it's why we have such inherent delays in diagnosis in female conditions, particularly those that may have a problem with sexuality as one of the symptoms. Like fibroids, there's a huge delay in diagnosis. Endometriosis, um, one of the symptoms is, you know, sexual pain, particularly deep pain in the pelvis. And that has up to a 10-year delay in diagnosis um, in this country. And so to me, it's criminal because um, you're making these patients invisible. They're trying to come to you. They're trying to seek care. Uh, They want help, um, but we're not giving them the tools either with the time, the expertise, or the education. And so really we are um, punishing them and kind of giving them extended amount of time with their disease process, uh, you know, and the cost is too great. I meet women who have lost their marriages, who have lost their self-esteem, who have lost their partners, who have left their jobs. 900,000 women in the UK left the workforce because of um, undiagnosed or untreated menopausal symptoms. And so, you know, I've heard some callous remarks before about, well, it's not going to kill her. Like why all this passion? Why all this expertise? You know, there are so many issues in healthcare that we treat that it is not fatal if you don't treat, but it's about quality of life and confidence and what matters to that patient. Uh, So, you know, it really makes me go from zero to a hundred when someone dismisses uh, female healthcare conditions. Also, I think it's so interesting because men, I mean, I could name like five different medications to help with ED. And I've seen, and I have to email them because it bothers me all the time, him and hers. That, and hers, yeah. Yes. So when you look at their marketing, the male commercials are all about filling medications, Viagra or hair loss or stuff to make them feel good and be the their best selves. While the female commercials are Lexapro, depression medication, all these things. And it's like, wait, you're marketing to the same demographic, but you are putting out that stigma that, oh, well, men, not a problem. We can totally help you get hard, get your hair back, feel your best self. Women, you're dealing with anxiety, depression. We feel sorry. So we can help with those medications. And I just look at that as someone in marketing being like, you're only continuing these stereotypes and not thinking about women's sexual health or women's, you know, menopause or what's going on. And it bothers me. So I'm going to guff my soapbox about that. No, a very wise friend of mine who's in this industry said this exact thing that you're picking on, uh, picking up on when there is a uh, male issue, when it comes to sexuality, it's always about biology. When it comes to female issues, it comes to, it's always blamed on psychology, right? Like exactly what you're alluding to. When the truth of the matter is sexuality, regardless of gender, 
um, is a biopsychosocial issue. And what do I mean by that? Yes, it's about hormones and medications and your health history, um, but it's also about what is going on in your life and what is going on with your mental health. You have to take all of those uh, parameters and issues into account. I remember, for example, meeting a woman who had reported low desire and when, you know, she came to me because another head doctor had written her one of the prescriptions for um, low libido drug or HSDD, and she had failed it. And when I started asking her questions um, that we do at her MD, because we have those 60 minute appointments, it turns out that her, um, she was being abused in her relationship. And so you can write all of the drugs in the world, but if someone is hurting you, you're not going to have desire. And we had a very long conversation about that together. And, you know, she shared with me that she had never been able to share that with anybody else. And given the time and the space and that feeling of being comfortable, um, she was able to share that. And I think that that is a huge component that is missing um, in healthcare today. Let's talk about her MD. Um, you are a female Pakistani woman from the Midwest with no <laughs> VC ties, and no. you're older than most individuals who start the VC process. And realistically, less than 2% of all dollars, VC mm -hmm. dollars go towards women. I would say most people would say you were climbing up Everest, but you believed so much in her MD and what you needed. Talk about how did you get that seat at the table? How did you finally say enough is enough? Did people think you were crazy to start this? Or did once you explain to people why you're doing this, they realized, no, this is the next wave of medicine? Oh, um, people thought I was nuts. Um, number one, I was reminded over and over again about the odds uh, stacked against me. You know, all those statistics you named. And if you add all those other parameters that I'm a minority from the Midwest, that I'm a dinosaur because I was in my mid to late forties, it was less than a half percent chance of succeeding. So flip it the other way. I was told that you have a 95.5% chance or 99.5% chance of failure. 99.5% chance I was told that you would fail. But I surrounded myself with really, really smart women and a team who really believed in the mission. And we had a very powerful story. And our practice um, at that point had two locations, Ohio and Kentucky. And we had attracted women from 35 states and three countries who were seeking out the type of healthcare that we were delivering, which is general gynecology, advanced gynecology, menopause and sexual healthcare, but within an insurance-based system. And that has not happened before. And to top it all off, we have almost no provider turnover, meaning our doctors and providers, they don't leave. That's unheard of in medicine because by 2025, we're expected to lose nearly half of our workforce because of COVID-related stress and strain and what I was talking about earlier, that they're not happy, they don't have mission, they don't feel validated, and they don't feel part of the team. And so we literally, our first fundraising round went like this. We had so many VCs that got it, understood, and wanted to support us. Now, that being said, I heard a lot of no's. Um, and I heard friends saying, 
why do you need to do this? You know, you're successful. It's fine. Just keep your little practice. I heard things like your husband makes enough money. Like, why are you trying to do this? Um, and I, you know, as a minority woman, I had people look past me and be like, Where, where's your leadership team? Like basically who else is in charge of you or in charge of this? And, um, which is crazy. I've been doing this 20 years. I sit on medical advisory panels. I'm a key opinion leader. I lead and participate in clinical research trials. But when you come into a system and you say, "Mm -mm, like, I'm going to shake this up. Like, this is not good for patients. This is not good for providers. People are like, who do you think you are? Um, and they really challenge you and, you know, you make people nervous when you truly want to exact change. So let's talk about the first location. You opened it up in your hometown in Mm -hmm. Ohio. And what I found interesting was you also have a med spa part of it. And so it's kind of like your women want to feel good, both like sexually, but also they want to look good too. And let's be realistic. We all do Botox. We get stuff done, not to please other people, but for us. And if we're willing to spend the money, I know that I would love to go to a med spa where I knew maybe I was spending an extra dollar to a unit, but that was helping on the other side of the building individuals who maybe couldn't afford healthcare or need to have surgeries that other insurances weren't going to pay. Can you explain how you thought of this business model? Because I think it's brilliant. (laughs) It's so funny because so many people didn't lock on. And a lot of my patients who saw me for a lot of years were like, Dr. Javade, just explain. We trust you. We love you. Like, why are you doing this? Um, you know, when I started the business, I knew that one of the biggest barriers was time and that I wanted to give patients time. And I did not want to be a doctor to just affluent patients or people who could afford it. So I wasn't going to go concierge. That was against every... Uh, fiber in my being. I wanted to be a doctor to nearly everybody. And so I knew I wanted to take insurance. I knew I didn't want to be concierge. I did not want to charge patients a membership because these these are all other barriers to care. And I knew that aesthetics was the most rapidly growing industry and you didn't need a residency for it. And I knew all these med spas were super successful, but I was like, we're going to have doctors and providers on site, which makes it even safer for patients. And the med spa truly brings in a lot of revenue that helps support 60-minute appointments. Insurance companies don't even reimburse enough to break even um, because people are like, oh, you got paid by insurance. And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. And we are not nearly paid as well as some of the hospital systems or some of the bigger players because we're still considered new, right? Even though I've been practicing for 20 years. And so I wanted to bring in something that if women spent money and brought in revenue, they would get something for it. It wasn't just to be a member. And it also is, if you think about it, continuity of care. Women come in and they're like, I want my hormones, I want my annual, and I want my Botox. Or women with certain conditions, let's say polycystic ovary syndrome, you know, there's hormonal imbalances that can cause really bad acne and hair growth. And so women can get their acne addressed, their fertility, their abnormal bleeding, their ultrasound, um, their fertility meds, or their contraception, but they can also get their laser hair removal and they can get it in one place. And because we have physicians on site, our solutions for hydrofacial are the strongest available. Our lasers, 
there's no limitation on the strength because once again, we have providers on site. So you're getting the best of the best as far as medical spas. You're getting something if you're spending money and you're absolutely right. I compare it to a Tom's shoe. Um, you know, people are like, are you worried about other med spas that pop up? I'm like, no, people support us because they recognize that everyone gets access to this exceptional healthcare um, by supporting the spa. Uh, and so it's a it's a phenomenal win-win, but I will tell you, there were a lot of raised eyebrows initially um, when I did this. And now there's a lot of uh, copycats. You know, I hear that imitation is flattery, but a lot of copycats now who are trying to pop up and, and attempting to do the same thing um, because it works so well. So you just opened up your fourth location for HerMD in Carmel, Indiana, and you have another one coming up in New Jersey shortly. And I know you said that by like 2023, end of this year, you want like 15 locations. I might be overpopulating that number, but you're planning on growing, which I love. And women from all across the country drive to your clinics. Obviously, over the summer, Roe versus Wade got overturned, and it feels like there is a huge attack on women's health and women's bodies. How has that shaped her MD? How are you? Are there legal issues you have to worry? Are you looking at which states to really <laughs> open? Um, I don't know how much you can get into it, but I was just really curious when I was reading that women are driving 30 plus hours to come to your first few uh, locations? Yeah. yeah, no, we had a woman drive two days from Florida to come see us because we took her military insurance and she had a sexual issue that other doctors just told her, be thankful you're alive. And she was like, I want my libido and I want to save my marriage. And so we were able to help her. Roe v. Wade did change or the overturning did change some things for us for sure. Um so I do have to say this, her MD does not provide medical or surgical abortions, but we definitely provide the counseling before, the counseling afterwards. We do provide emergency contraception um, like plan B. Um, we do place IUDs, not in pregnant uteruses. That was an old fashioned way to perform abortion. Um, but you know, in some states, uh, surgery for ectopic pregnancy, which we do, um, is under attack potentially. Can you just I explain what that is in case listeners yeah. have been in the dark for whatever reason? Yeah. So an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy um, that resides either outside of the uterus, in the fallopian tubes, on the ovary, in the abdomen, or potentially a part of the uterus where it cannot survive, like the cervix. Um, and so these are traditionally treated with either medications um, or surgery. And in some states, a lot of states have made a carve out and said, okay, that is not considered an abortion when a doctor takes care of uh, an ectopic pregnancy medically or surgically. Uh, a medical or an ectopic pregnancy is not viable. And some people have said, well, just transfer it. In history, there has never been a successful transfer of an ectopic pregnancy. Now, there have been a few case reports of an abdominal pregnancy actually making it to term. There are case reports. Um, but the, it is the number one risk for maternal mortality, um, meaning the risk of women dying are from ruptured or untreated ectopic pregnancies. And so you're really talking about compromising a living, breathing human being for a pregnancy that will never come to fruition. And so, um, 
you know, there's that issue that our legal team uh, researches and keeps up with in every state that we're in. Uh, and the second issue, you know, in some states, there was potentially going to be legislation um, going after IUDs because IUDs do not always uh, prevent fertilization, which is when egg and sperm meet. Sometimes one of the mechanisms they work is um, preventing implantation. And so uh, some lawmakers were trying to label IUDs as abortifacients, um, which is simply not true. Uh, so we are just keeping track of um, the laws and in every state to make sure that we are not putting our patients or providers at risk. What are your plans for the rest of the year for HerMD or I guess maybe even three-year plan? Because it seems like this is such an important institution that there's so many women in this country who either are not putting their health first because they're thinking more about their children, or maybe they're a single parent and they work two shift jobs and just like can't get to the doctor before it's too late or worried about insurance. I'm fortunate enough that I have a good job and have great insurance, but I still see sometimes when I have to get tests done or bills come in and I'm just shock at like what the cost is for basic blood work or basic healthcare coverage, let alone if you have an issue. And I feel like people try to avoid it because of the costs. Um, our plan and goal is we're, uh, again, fundraising um, to open more centers. Uh, we are probably going to um, open a few more centers this year, definitely hopefully get up to 15 or more by the end of 2024. And the goal by 2026 is to have north of 40 centers. Really, the goal is to increase access so that patients don't have to drive 30 hours or two days uh, to get this type of exceptional healthcare. Uh, really expanding access as far as the uh, healthcare payers, insurance companies that we are working with, trying to maximize maximize access for women, um, and then continuing to train our providers via a vehicle we call HerMD University, so that we can really break that lack of education. Right, that statistic of less than twenty percent of OBGYNs being trained in menopause and sexual healthcare really needs to end. And so that is her MD's mission, right? Is to fix healthcare, not only on the patient side, but also on the, on the provider side. And so those are the goals. Uh, so I need, you know, uh, more checks this year for sure, uh, so that we can continue on in this mission. Let's talk about menopause. Um, it's, seems like it's a big buzzword. It's finally having its moment where people are talking about it and not afraid to hide it. Uh, it's been starting to pop up in different TV shows and conversation. And I want to say becoming more mainstream, even though it's always been there. There's more resources out there for people to learn about. But what are those few key questions that if women are starting to think that that time is happening to start asking their providers? And also, when is the age that that starts to pop up? Because when I talked to Sally Mueller about it, and when I met you the first time at that panel, I was shocked to learn that menopause happens for the rest of your life once it starts. I always thought it was just a, a phase, like a few years, and then like it's gone. And when I learned that, nope, it's with you for life once it starts, I was shocked. I didn't know that I'm a female. And 
So I feel like there's so much out there that people don't know is happening or the symptoms they're experiencing are pre-menopause. Yes. So um, we will spend 40% of our lives in menopause due to increased life expectancy. So I tell people much like Sally, she calls it the after party. I'm like, if we are lucky enough to live that long, we will be menopausal. Um, The average age in the United States is 51. The years preceding menopause is 12 months with cycle or women's had a partial hysterectomy, we draw a menopause, pan, or menopause um, hormone to check if they are in menopause. So there's two different ways to diagnose it. The average age in the United States is 51. Perimenopause, which can cause all of the symptoms of menopause, there's like 30 plus that we have um, recognized. You can have all those symptoms. The only thing is you're still having some type of menstrual bleeding, but that perimenopausal period can last up to 10 years. And so what you want to start doing is really documenting all your symptoms. Is it insomnia? Is it vaginal dryness? Is it diminished libido? Is it painful sex? Is it weight gain? Is it joint pain? Is it word finding? You know, I have some people who are like, I can't find my words. Um, there are, and just really keeping track of your symptoms, keeping track of your cycles, and then of your family history and when women went into menopause in your family, and then talking to your doctor about options. Hormones, I'm a huge fan, as long as they're a candidate. Nothing protects your bone, brain, and heart uh, like hormones. There are also non-hormonal uh, prescription options for hot flashes. There are um, a lot of options, whether over-the-counter, you know, vaginal moisturizers, lubricants for sexuality, vaginal suppositories, um, which contain hormone, which a lot of people are still candidates for, even if they can't take a systemic uh, hormone. So talking to your doctor ahead of time, knowing your options is huge. Uh, I was talking to Stacey London, you know, who's a huge proponent of menopause and awareness. And her biggest issue was she just wasn't educated and felt like she wasn't prepared and thought she was dying because no one told her that menopause is way more than a hot flash. And so I think that is the issue is that women need to be educated so they can go, oh, wait, this may be menopause. I'm not going crazy. I'm not dying. I'm not having a heart attack like Oprah thought she was. And so I think education is going to be our first modality and making this better. And then I think the second is educating our providers, making sure they give patients the correct information um, and we don't scare people off. Did you read the recent article? I loved it in the New York Times about how women have been misled about menopause and how we keep sticking to this um, very outdated you know, study. And a lot of doctors and providers stop learning after that. And they didn't stop and learn all of the new clinical trials that said, hey, that study, not the greatest, included a lot of women we wouldn't treat now, a lot of older women that um, wouldn't be candidates for hormones that are going to get diseases at that age group anyways. We all do as we increase, um, you know, through our years in life. And so um, those are the changes that we need to make so that women can make informed decisions about menopause and that they can be partners in their healthcare. Well, what I found interesting is when I was listening to a different interview you did, you talked about how for OBGYN, your residency was four years. And out of the four years, only four weeks was dedicated to menopause. But here you're saying that every female goes through this 
for possibly up to 40 years, but you only got four weeks of training around this topic that can vary. There's such different extremes of what menopause looks like for all different women. I don't know if it even changes based off of your heritage or where you're from, or if you've had any other life issues growing up, is that going to change how menopause affects your body? But there's not really been a lot of research or clinical studies recently looking at this. And I know at her MD, you do some clinical studies within your practices. Have you been trying to focus more on like those with menopause or have you tried to even start your own clinical trials around this? Because this is something you're seeing almost in all your patients. Oh God, we have a research department. Um, we are but mighty. Uh, we definitely are focused on homegrown research. We do work with some outside companies that may be looking for clinical data. We have done um, some in the sexual health space. Actually, that's where most of our clinical research has been. Doing our own full-blown clinical research trials, millions and millions of dollars, like millions of dollars. And so our best bet is to partner with universities that have wanted to work with us, uh, pharmaceutical companies, therapeutics companies, device companies that truly have um, the money to support this type of research. And that is going to be our best bet now until her MD can start obtaining grants, which is a future goal of mine. Um, just not yet. Right now, the goal is to build out these brick and mortar to also expand our virtual access. You know, we didn't touch upon that, but to do telehealth. So in every state where we place a brick and mortar, we will then pick up not only that telehealth state, but um, surrounding states, recognizing that her MD patients do drive in, they're willing to drive in a couple of hours um, and so expanding access. So that's what we're concentrating on now, but definitely we are doing our clinical research um, and would love to expand that as well, because you know this and I know this, that data is the only way we are going to change things, um, the status quo for women and make exceptional healthcare standard of care. Um, and so data is very important to us. Speaking of telehealth, how has that changed how women are communicating with their providers. Do they feel like if they're home, they're able to open up more? Have you seen like an increase in being able to have those um, more effective conversations? Because sometimes it's easier to, if they are in an abusive relationship or something's going on, instead of like saying, oh, I'm going to the doctor, just having that phone call, maybe it doesn't tip off, some, you know, whoever's living in their home or whatever the circumstance could be. So what we've seen, uh, so two things with our uh, virtual care. So everything's done on video. Um, so we can see the patient and uh, assess them as well. But they're coming in from further and further away because of the virtual care, which is really nice. And when you come into a brick and mortar location, you know, even if you don't live in that state, we can take care of you for that year continually virtually, which has really expanded our access to patients, um, which is really, really nice. Uh, this month, we are expanding into um, sexual health care counseling. You know, we had a clinical trial stating, showing how successful we are with the drugs that we use for low libido for women, particularly because we get them into pelvic floor physical therapy, we get them into counseling. And so remember that biopsychosocial approach. And so we have brought on our own um, counselor and we are really going to expand that program so that we can offer that within the HerMD family. And so you're right. Some patients are a lot more comfortable doing that um, in their own home. 
and they're able to open up. It also gives them the ability to test the waters to see if HerMD is a good fit for them. Um, and a lot of times people ask me, what can people do virtually? You know, we all saw those jokes of, of women, you know, getting ready for a pap smear virtually. Okay, we're not doing examinations. We do not have patients send us pictures or do anything like that. It's it's face-to-face like this. But we can start menopause consults, sexual health care consults, um, address weight loss, um, which we do because 80% of women that come into her MD are upset about weight gain, which can happen in menopause. And so we can send them lab orders so they can get their labs drawn. We can send them orders to get imaging if they need that um, at an institution close to them, if there's not a HerMD close to them. So we can really facilitate a lot of care. Obviously, we cannot do an examination, a biopsy or anything like that. But for us, it's really expanded access to patients I'm, geographically. I'm so excited to watch HerMD grow. I think this is a phenomenal option for women. And it's definitely been long overdue. I hope that funding people listen to this. And if they know someone, reach out if they're able to help or connect you with others who are willing to either help with trials or donate money or know people who are in the VC world, because this is something that women aren't going away, health issues aren't going away, menopause isn't going away. And if the corporations and the hospitals aren't going to put resources behind it. I'm happy like you are taking a stand to do so for women across this country. I know your time is very, very valuable. So I just appreciate you coming on and speaking with me. I end every episode with the final three questions. And the first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? See, I have multiple depending on my mood, but you know, I love well-behaved women rarely make history because so many times I was told to just behave or just stop. If you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. Um, and one that I say to myself uh, and to my children is the most valuable piece of real estate you will ever own is here. Fill it with dreamers, doers, magic makers, and let all the detractors go. So the, like, those are a couple of uh, the mantras I live by. I love it. The second question is, if you could relive one day, which day would you choose? I say this to my kids all the time. Um, I want one day with each of them. So I want three days. I have three children and it would be around the age of three. Um, and I would let the dishes go. I would let work go. I wouldn't be on call. I wouldn't pay attention to anything else other than what they and their imagination, like what they wanted to do. That is what I would kill for. That age of innocence and magic. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yes. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Oh, you are funny. So I will tell you this. I you know, do a lot of pitching. I do a lot of talking. And so I have a soundtrack, right? Because we all have days where we feel amazing some days and then some days they are awful. And that is the roller coaster of being, I think, a mom, a woman, an entrepreneur, a doctor. Uh, but some of my favorites are um, Girl, on, uh, Girl on Fire. Um, I love I Lived by One Republic. I love This Is Me. Um, I love um, Midnight Rain, Born This Way champion. I think it just depends on, um, you know, the mood I'm in, what I'm getting ready for, what's going on both personally and professionally. Um, but it just, it just depends. And there's lyrics that speak to me from every single one of these songs. And so what I do is I just keep dumping it into the hype playlist 
and I play it when I'm up, when I'm down, um, when I'm in between. And it, it, it really helps me. No, I think music is such a motivator and it, uh, those, when you hear those lyrics that either when you're sad or happy that just speak to you, I always joke that I'm that person that I'll replay the song again because the lyrics didn't hit me hard enough sometimes, but I am going to go ahead and add a few of those songs to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist so listeners can hear what motivates you and gets you ready to go into those VC meetings and talk about your mission. I mean, if you want to talk about the one that we listened to over and over again, it yeah. was Taylor Swift, the man, when we were uh, fundraising. Because if you think about it, yes, it would have been so much easier, but we we kept going, you know? Um, so I always joke about that one. So it's actually so funny. A uh, former podcast guest, Aaron Gallagher, who this whole time you've been talking, I'm like, I'm going to connect you to over email. Uh, that was her song as well. And she said the exact same thing you did. Um, so thank you so much, Somi, for everything. So excited that I got to meet you in person previously. And I'm hoping that her MD at some point opens up in Illinois so we can help people uh, who definitely need it here in Chicago. It's on the roadmap, friend. It's on the roadmap. Great. (laughs) Thank you.